And welcome back for our Q&A time. The first question is, telling Eve uh, she will die if she eats of a particular tree sounds like a restricting of her freedom, doesn't it? It depends on what law lens you're looking through. If you look through in a human law lens and God's laws work like human law, then God just made up a rule and he's restricting them and he'll punish them if they act against the the rule that he made. But if you understand design law, then what God said to them enhanced their freedom because it gave them greater information upon which to make better choices to exercise their liberties and they were not restrained in any way. It would be like saying, in the day you jump off the Empire State Building, you will surely die. There is no restriction in liberty in informing somebody of that, and educating somebody in that gives them greater freedom to make better choices. So that's really what's happening. It really depends. So anybody who would suggest it was a restriction is indicating that their way of seeing things are imperial or human law, not design law. And then the next comment says, After one day in heaven, I can't believe any one of us will have any doubt about God's decisions concerning those who aren't there. After a year, we will be even more convinced. After 100 years, after 999 years, I will believe that God's decisions are 100%. So why bring back the wicked to life? They aren't changing. Seems futile. First of all, there are many assumptions into these questions here that you should be critically going, hmm. So the assumption is if we just have enough time, time answers all questions. That's kind of an assumption in the way that was structured, wasn't it? Just enough time. Time answers the question. How much time did Lucifer and the sinless angels have prior to Lucifer's rebellion? More than 999 years? I'm willing to confidently say they had more than 999 years. Did the time they had with God in close proximity to him ensure their eternal loyalty and devotion to God because they had all that time? It did not. No. Time does not ensure loyalty. The truth ensures loyalty. And once Lucifer rebelled, questions uh, arose. So what is the purpose then about uh, for raising the dead, then. What, this is the next question. The purpose of raising the dead is to, is to get us to trust God. I will tell you, every one of God's actions inform us about God. So it is true there's always the, the element of what does this tell us about God in every action God takes. That's, that's part of it. But it is not true that the primary reason for raising the dead is to inform us about God. That's a secondary reason. The primary reason is it's the only way love functions. Each individual must decide for themselves whether they want to continue their existence in a universe when God no longer shields them from the results of being in rebellion against him. And understand, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God created an artificial bubble of reality where his life-giving glory, which is described in Scripture as a fire, was veiled. It has been hidden from planet Earth. Every other planet in perfect harmony with God in this universe that he has created, if you were to go to those planets, they live in a brilliant light in which God's presence is like described as a consuming fire. We get a little glimpse of it in, in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him and thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 stand in this fire. That condition has not been known on planet Earth since Adam sinned get a little glimpse of it in the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus uh, 
Elijah and Moses are described as their clothing like the, as bright as the sun. Adam and Eve were described as having worn clothing of light. Where is that coming from? That was their union and intimacy with God. It says in Revelation that the new earth, there'll be no need for the sun to light the earth because God's presence will be its light. That is the reality into which we're going. That's our future. That is not where we live today. God raises the wicked and they experience that reality and he leaves every individual free to decide. Do you want to live in this reality or not? And they don't. It says they beg for the mountains to fall on them and crush them and hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne. And that's how love works. Love does not force people into relationship. But at some point, God stops the artificial bubble and restores his universe back to the uh, full unveiled presence, uh, his presence. And the wicked are raised into that space and experience that presence and they decide. That's how love works. And we learn something about God in that, and we learn why some are kept out in that, and none are kept out because God keeps them out. God would like everyone there, but they don't want to be there. And we will be at peace for those who are not there because we will love them so much. We wouldn't want to hold them by force in a place in which they are tormented. We would only want them, and we understand, even if we have a loved one that's lost, we understand that they're in the place that they love best. That's where they want to be. I often wonder why the devil was not included in the plan of salvation. These are deep questions today, aren't they? Yeah. Is it possible that the plan of salvation was not set out before sin started in heaven? The Bible only says that the plan was set before the world began. If there was no plan before sin ever occurred, then the devil had to be eventually destroyed. There was no plan for his salvation uh, if there was no plan before he sinned. In other words, okay. Um, yeah. So what do you all think about this question? Again, there, there's, uh, these are speculative questions in many ways. Uh, I am not against godly speculation. I do a lot of it myself. <laughs> but it needs to be anchored into objective reality that is testable in God's word that, we, that has been revealed to us. Okay. There are several key points that are left out of this speculation that would help refine it for us. Humans and angels are different in multiple ways. Angels sinned in the light of God's glory. We don't know how long, but they had personal experience with God. Angels, every fallen angel, also has a personal, individual experience of sinless living. Only Adam and Eve had a brief period of that, as far as humans go. The rest of us don't have that historical memory data bank to draw on. The angels did. From their own experience. They knew what sinless living was like in a universe without sin. They had their own personal experience with that. They don't have children. None of them were born in sin and conceived in iniquity. We are. And so the plan of salvation for Jesus to become human was specifically for the purpose of redeeming the species human because angels didn't need that intervention. However, 
angels needed the revelation of truth to solidify the loyal in their loyalty so there wouldn't be any further rebellion again. In other words, prove Satan's lies wrong. We see this elements in the book of Job when Satan comes from walking to and fro on the earth and we see these processes being worked out and in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. His dragon and his angels fought back. What's the word for war? In the Greek, polemo, from when we get polemic. It's a war of words, a war of ideas, a war of arguments. We see put Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, that angels, uh, we are a theater, a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. Okay, so these lessons are out there. Angels long to look into these things. It says, and, and, and so the angelic host had questions, the loyal ones, to, to, be, to be solidified into. The fallen ones, in my understanding of things, there was a time in their initial rebellion when they had the ability to reconstitute their loyalty to God. And they had the capacity to make the decision to recommit themselves to the Lord, and they would have been taken back. They didn't need a sacrifice. They didn't either. They had their own personal memories and experiences and knowledge of God to rely on. We didn't. We needed an, another revelation. Now, if you value Ellen White's writings, she actually says that, um, and this is fairly clo- close to a quote, that um, again and again Satan was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. End quote. In fact, that was a quote. He was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. And had he done so, he'd have been returned to his former place, she goes on to say. But she says that man was in a different position than that of Lucifer. To Lucifer, as no other created being was given a revelation of God's character of love. But man was in a different position. To him, the height, the depth of the, of the love of God, he did not know. And there was hope for man and a revelation of God's character of love. And so there was differences. And, and Lucifer was able to come back up to a point. What was the point? Until the point that he destroyed within him the, the very faculties that respond to love and truth, and the seeds of rebellion would still remain his, his in other words, selfishness and, and deceit would remain in him. And once he permanently destroyed those faculties that he was created with, then, and it talks about it, that faculties, the Bible uses the word sanctuaries, if you've written in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 about how he perverted or destroyed his sanctuaries, the place in which the Spirit dwells, the Spirit of truth and love, he perverted the very uh, abilities or, or, or faculties that God created that are sensitive to the movements of the Holy Spirit. And once those were destroyed, then he couldn't come back anymore. He believed his own lie. Uh, yes, he, became, he believed his own lie. His own pride would not let him... Yeah, and I would encourage you, if, if who wrote this question, read read uh, things out of um, Story of Redemption uh, and um, uh, Desire of Ages, the chapter it is written, uh, early chapters of Patriarchs and Prophets. It gives great insight into some of these things. But that's my understanding. That functionally, they were different. They had their own angelic, personal experiences of sinful living in a sinless, sin, sinless living in a sinless universe prior to their rebellion, and, and we don't have that. I've heard you say that there is no sanctuary in heaven, or at least that's what I have understood you to say. But in Ellen White's writings, I just came across this statement and curious as to what your thoughts are. Quote, we, are, we all need to keep the subject of the sanctuary in mind. God forbid that the clatter of words coming from human lips should lessen the belief of our people in the truth that there is a sanctuary in heaven and that the pattern of the sanctuary was once built on earth. 
so f- f- I appreciate you saying um, and, and putting the caveat, at least that's what you've understood. And I also um, appreciate you asking the question because people misunderstand me quite frequently. I'll give you some examples of how I get misunderstood. I have said many times that Jesus did not have to die as our substitute in order to pay a penalty to his father for our sin. Is that the same thing as saying Jesus did not have to die for our sin? No. No. It is not. If I were to say Jesus did not have to die in order for uh, manufacturers to learn how to to make uh, clothing, that's a true statement, isn't it? You didn't have to die for them to learn that. That's not the reason. But that's not the same thing saying he didn't have to die for our sin. But, but when I say that he didn't have to die to pay a penalty to his father for our sin, those who believe that's the reason he had to die will immediately jump to the conclusion. Jennings doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement, doesn't believe Jesus had to die. I never said that. I just said he didn't have to die for that reason. Likewise, when it comes to this, I've never said, or if I have, then I misspoke. And if you can find that I said it somewhere, because sometimes I do misspeak. I'll actually say something that I, I, I didn't think I said. I've gone back and listened to the tape and go, that's not what I thought I said. I thought I said this. Sometimes words come out that I didn't actually mean. <laughs> so, uh, so what I have said uh, regarding the sanctuary and, and the question of the sanctuary is I ask, if you use inspired sources, and use the inspired source, whatever, if you, the Bible only, use the Bible only. If you value Ellen White, use the Bible and Ellen White. But use inspired sources. What is the building material that the inspired sources tell us the sanctuary in heaven is constructed out of? It does tell us, yes. We are living stones built together in a house for the Lord. Know ye not that ye are a temple for the Lord? And on and on. What's the foundation of the apostles? Which Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. I believe there's a real, literal temple in heaven. But I believe it's built out of living beings. Satan did not want, in my understanding, to knock Jesus off of a throne in heaven inside a building made out of inanimate material. I I don't see a scenario anywhere in in inspired records in which Satan, Lucifer, one day walked into a a heavenly cathedral, some building made out of bricks and mortar, and walked in and said, wow, this building is incredible. Look at the ceilings. Look at the stained glass. Lord, would you mind if I had this building for my own? Now, if it was just a building made out of gold, silver, platinum, jewels, if that's all it was, what would Jesus, as we have seen him described in Scripture, have done when Lucifer said, I love this building, can I have it? What would he have done? (laughs) It's yours, I can make another one like that. Like that, like that. Do you really think Lucifer wanted to throw Jesus off a throne in a building and sit there alone in a building somewhere? No, the throne he wanted to enthrone itself upon was the hearts and minds of intelligent beings to be the one that the heart that the intelligent beings adored and worshiped, excuse me, worshiped more than Jesus. It was the spirit temple that he wanted to displace God from. Amen. That's the real issue here, and thus the cleansing of the temple. And this is what it says in Thessalonians, by the way. It says that um, don't, don't be deceived about the second coming, because it's not going to come until the man of sin appears, and the man of sin who's destined uh, the man, or some say, say the man of perdition. He goes on to say, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Paul wrote that around 65 AD, about 30, 30 some years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And so he's saying that, this, that the end is going to come to this man of sin arises, and, and he's going to arise, and he's going to set himself up in God's temple. Paul's describing this as, as, as something that's yet to happen. After Jesus has ascended into heaven. So it's Paul saying that this man of sin is going to arise and he's going to go up into heaven and he's going to knock Jesus off his throne in heaven and begin reigning in the heavenly realms. No, he's talking about he's going to uh, uh, set himself up in God's temple, proclaim himself to be God. The temple is the spirit temple. He set himself up in the hearts and minds of human beings as the one to be worshipped when he displaced the truth about who God is with the imperial Roman dictator view of God through getting us to accept God's law works no different than human law. And if God's law works no different than human law, then sin is breaking the rules, and God, in order to be just, becomes the source of inflicted pain that he puts out upon people. And in order for us not to be punished by eternal death by God, who must punish us for sin in order to be just, Jesus then need to pay a blood penalty that we offer to the Father to pay him our debt, and therefore the Father won't kill us, and we're, we're now worshiping Baal. That's paganism. He set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And so the temple needs to be cleansed. What temple? The same temple where the, where the man of sin has set himself up, our hearts and minds. And we cleanse it by coming back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. We come to back to worship the creator and understand his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And we displace this pagan view of God from our hearts and minds. And we enthrone the creator and we glorify him, fear God, be in awe of him and give him glory. Glorify him in your character, live like him, because the hour in human history has come, the hour of his judgment. The hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God, to stop judging him to be this imperial dictator and judge him to be the loving creator who runs the universe on design law. So that's what I think is going on. What do you think of the new bill, 2098, signed by the California governor that subjects the state's doctors to discipline, including the suspension of their medical license, for sharing misinformation or disinformation about COVID-19 with their patients? Apparently, the American Medical Association strongly supports the bill and hopes that other states will follow suit. Are you all familiar with this? Well, this is, this is, this is true. Um, I don't know if, I didn't know it got signed. I know it was in the legislation and being passed. I don't know if it's actually in force yet. Probably, I'm sure it'll go through judicial challenge, which it should, and it should be struck down because first, first, it's a violation of the freedom of speech. Notice that they're going to be subject to discipline for speaking and educating what they understand to be the medical facts, not for practicing medicine on a patient historical medical malpractice is you have a patient and you're treating that patient and you give them a treatment that harms them. That's not what this is. This would be somebody like me standing up here giving a public lecture and lecturing on the concerns about what's happening and maybe showing data and science and epidemiological surveys and so forth and so on that contradicts the official narrative then you become a medical heretic and you're subject to persecution. This is, again, what I said in class today. This is the methods of the, uh, these, are, these are demonic methods, the same methods used by the, the Dark Ages church, and they're absolutely contradictory to how science works. Understand, historic medical science rarely gets it right the first time. <laughs> There are ideas that are called hypotheses, 
that are put out and there's a trial and the trial tests a certain treatment and a certain population with a control group. Maybe, maybe that maybe it does. We look for outcomes and in a small cherry picked population, I say cherry picked because when a, when a company or organization decides to do a trial, they do not try it on everybody in the population. They try to solidify down a population that is most likely to give a good outcome without side effects. So they eliminate people that they can predict likely problems with because the goal is to, to first prove the point. And this is how, say, a pharmaceutical makes it to market. And once it comes to market, it begins to be prescribed in people who are clearly not representative of the trial group. For instance, a trial group may be uh, individuals between 20 and 40 with no major health problems. But now it's being prescribed in patients 70 with eight, me- me- eight or 10 medical problems and, and 14 medications. They, they were excluded from the group, you see. That, those aren't the same population, but that's what happens. And, it comes, and then when you roll it out to the larger population, oftentimes what happens? Side effects come and they have to re- recall things and say, no, that's not it. Or how about this? When Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister advanced germ theory in the medical community, did the medical community embrace this, these wonderful insights about how hand washing and sterilization could prevent infections and reduce surgical complications and negative outcomes? Or, in fact, were both of them quite severely persecuted? Yes. This, this, is, uh, this is a medical authoritarianism, not based on science, based on politics, based on uh, destroying critical reasoning, based, based on uh, opposition to actual the way truth advances in any setting or any society. This is demonic. I'm just tell you, it was part of the rise of the beastly system of revelation. Hopefully the courts will strike it down. Uh, I have, somebody asked, who was the first Trinitarian? Jesus, God the Father, and God the Son. They were the first Trinitarians. Yes? Okay, before the rest of us were even created. They existed in a triune perfection of love. I'm not going to read speculative questions that there's no actual inspiration for. A lot of, uh, I'm just not going to go into those. It says, the Bible states in many places we are three-part beings. Your discussion today was very clear. In the Gospels, I hear it come, uh, Jesus only speaks of the body and the soul and leaves uh, silent the spirit component in Matthew 10, 28. He does. He said, don't be afraid of the one who destroyed the body, but can't destroy the soul. Okay, uh, the soul being destroyed, um, yeah, and uh, the soul being destroyed in hell. Talks about that in other places, that's right. Uh, many Christians speak of the spirit in our three parts, an eternal or immortal, as eternal or mortal. Um, is the spirit part of us, the part that uh, is spiritual? Uh, no. So the spirit part in the, in the three part is from the Greek panuma, and it, it basically is where we get the word breath, it all, in, in the Greek, it actually is translated multiple different ways. The same Greek word, panuma, is translated breath, it's translated spirit, it's translated wind, it's translated ghost, holy ghost, holy spirit. Or when Jesus was walking on the water, and you remember the story, the apostles on the, on the lake, and they thought a ghost was walking out there, okay? The word is panuma. They thought panuma was walking out there, okay? So this word has multiple meanings in the New Testament, uh, and, and it depends on where it's used and in, in, in the meaning. So when they thought it was a ghost, they weren't thinking that it was uh, energy or breath, okay? When Jesus died, he gave up the ghost, okay? He gave up the ghost. What did he give up? 
He breathed his last. That's what I mean. He expired. When you inhale, inhalation, expiration. And so when someone expires, they give up the last breath, the panuma. Okay? This is all the same. It's the energy, the life breath that God breathed into Adam and Eden. He breathed into the breath of life, and it's the life energy. And according to the first law of thermodynamics, energy is neither created nor destroyed. It's conserved, meaning that uh, whatever energy there is, it is neither created or destroyed. It changes places, forms, and usages, and I would say that's absolutely true. The energies that we have that operate in our bodies when we die return to God who gave it. And the Bible says this, the spirit returns to God who gave it. And this is one of the big differences. I was going to this class next week, but I'll tell it to you today. This is one of the big differences between Eastern philosophies and biblical philosophy. Eastern, if you ever have a discussion with a Hindu or a Buddhist, they will try to use the first law of thermodynamics on you uh, as proof that their reincarnation theory is correct. Uh, the reincarnation theory, energy is neither conserved, neither created or destroyed, but conserved. So when we die, the energy that was in our body comes back again and again and again. They're correct on that. But the Bible is correct, and they're wrong, because the, it, what they have done, here's the error. They have merged energy... If you want to use the computer metaphor now, electricity with the software. They've merged panuma, spirit, with psyche, soul. And so when the energy comes back, they say the soul comes back, the individual uh, or the individuality of the software. The biblical model is quite different. Yes, the energy is conserved, and the energy cycles and returns to God and, and may come back in different life forms, but the individuality is not in the energy. The individuality is in the psyche, the soul, and the psyche or the soul is stored on the heavenly servers, the Lamb's Book of Life, and will be downloaded into new hardware at the resurrection. So... That's how I see that. And I think many people are confused because they actually haven't thought through the elements and they have accepted a lot of mythology coming either through Eastern philosophies or Greek philosophies when it comes to the nature of man. So the question is, if he'd have chosen to call the 12 legions of angels to save him at, uh, at the cross, would he have sinned by the choice? So uh, it would have depended on the reason for the choice. He would, have failed, he would have failed, I'll say this without question, he would have failed to be our redeemer and the human race would have been lost. My understanding is he had the freedom, though, to return to heaven without sacrificing himself. It was not a requirement that he sacrifice himself. But he could not achieve the goal without sacrificing himself. So it's possible he could have chosen to go, depending on the reason. But, the real, but he would have sinned had he acted for selfish reasons. So the act in selfishness, that would have been sin. What would have happened to Moses and Elijah if they're already up so, in heaven if he failed? So, here, so she asked, what would happen to Moses and Elijah? <laughs> so the question, I love this question. Thank you for asking this question. Because it shows, the, it shows our, our human finiteness in dealing with time. The fact that Moses and Elijah were already in heaven, and Enoch was proof positive that Jesus succeeded. We think in linear existence. We think past, present, and future. God created time. He does not live in a linear existence. All points in time are equal with God. But once Adam sinned, prior to, in our linear existence, Christ achieving the remedy, there was no remedy to apply to anyone in our linear existence. The fact that Adam 
excuse me, the fact that Enoch, Elijah, and Moses were taken to heaven is proof that God had a remedy to apply to them and deliver them from sin. Where did that remedy come from? It came from Jesus in humans' future. But for God, he lives outside of time. All points in time are equal. So Jesus, when he became incarnate, entered linear existence. Prior to that, he lived outside of linear existence. But as a, in Mary, he was born and, be, and began living in, in, in the flow of time. When he achieved his victory, once he achieved the victory, that's the cure or the remedy, God who lives outside of time can apply it anywhere in time because he doesn't live in time. So the fact for me uh, is that Moses, Enoch, and uh, Elijah in heaven is proof that Christ would succeed because if he hadn't, they couldn't have gone in the first place. Did I confuse everybody? I can see some heads nodding. The, con- the time concept gets a lot of people. But for me, if there is no remedy that exists, God can't use it anywhere in time. Once the remedy exists, God who lives outside of time can use it anywhere in time. We, we are restricted to a linear existence. God's not. Past, present, and future with God are alike outspread. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for the victories achieved. We ask now in our space time where we exist today, we open our hearts and ask for you to pour your spirit out, take the victory of Christ, and and reproduce it in us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.